Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tuesdays are normally our day for Coach Noel Mazzoni, and he will be joining us again to wrap up the season. We're going to talk about how he looks at analyzing the season that they've just finished. So we'll talk about that one, but he was a little bit busy today helping with some game planning, and we'll catch up with him and get that episode back on. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you to go and register for our sweepstakes. We've collaborated with Glazier Clinics to offer you a package of a flight, hotel, and staff pass to Glacier Clinics. Uh, the, the flight is for two as well as the hotel and a rental car. Uh, that package is worth $1,500. The staff pass is worth $400. And we're going to award that one on the 12th of December, which is the five-year anniversary of the podcast. So we appreciate Glazier working with us on this one. Be sure to check that out at glazierclinics.com win. Today's podcast is from the archives. One, we go back and talk to Sean Mishka, who has the nickname The Movement Miyagi. And joining me as my guest host on this one is Dr. Joe Eisenman, a good friend of mine who I worked with at USA Football and just an outstanding source for knowledge of high performance, strength and conditioning, all the things that go into building an athlete. And so, he connected me with Sean Mishka. We ended up going on to do an in-season series where we would pick out one play per week and focus on the movement of that particular athlete. He would share how he trains those types of movements, and I would share how you work those things into practice. Very interesting series. I'll connect you with the playlist link in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. So here's our episode with Sean Mishka on athlete movement and agility. Enjoy. We're here with Dr. Joe Eisenman, and our guest today is Sean Mishka. Sean Mishka is the Pro Performance Director of Explosive Edge Athletics in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he's entrusted with the personal consulting of countless NFL players who seek him out to take their performance to the limits of their potential. At the beginning of 2014, Sean introduced a new brand into the industry, Movement Mastery, which has the purpose of helping help helping train professionals of all kinds to more fully understand the process involved in attaining more optimal movement for athletes in all sporting disciplines. He also runs a football-specific movement blog, Football Beyond the Stats, in which he breaks down the movement patterns and mechanics of the top performers in, in the sport, plus offers insight regarding 
Training Principles for Football Performance. Sean, we're really excited to have you here. Uh, welcome to the USA Football Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Uh, gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very honored. I, I appreciate what you all are doing uh, in the profession, and uh, I couldn't be more pleased to be with you and hopefully talk some shop for coaches to hear. Coach Eisman, it's great to have you here as well. Yeah, thanks again, Keith. This is going to be another good episode, you know, focusing on, you know, movement and uh, agility in the sport of football. Well, Sean, before we get into it, uh, fill in some of the blanks here and talk to us about how you got into this specific uh, niche of the athletic performance industry. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And and my story probably isn't that much dissimilar from many others across the profession, of course, especially in uh, athletic performance or strength and conditioning and physical preparation. Uh, it's just kind of my journey has, has been one of, um, you know, a war of attrition, if you will, throughout the profession. You know, it, for me, first and foremost, it all kind of stems from my passion and energy being put forth to American football. You know, it's uh, even though I'm a former national level competitive bodybuilder and typically people think or associate that with the strength and conditioning side and maybe some of the path that I've gone down in order to get here. But I've really always been uh, intrigued uh, and fascinated by the movement that takes place out on the football field. And, and that should probably come as no surprise with where our conversation is going to go. But uh, throughout my career, uh, it's kind of been uh, hallmarked by different let's just call them uh, forks in the road. And I'm sure we'll kind of get into that a little bit with probably some of the questions that y'all will ask. But oftentimes, um, you know, throughout this profession, we all have uh, are coming from the same place. You know, we, we love to help people uh, reach the, the heights of their potential. And I'm really no different in that regard. But uh, my journey kind of started at the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, at least with training football athletes. And Wisconsin Stevens Point being a D3 school, didn't have a strength coach at the time. And uh, I just, you know, because of my passion in American football or football athletes, and I wasn't playing football anymore, you know, beyond um, that point in my career and my life, I was already competitive bodybuilding, but uh, because they didn't have a strength coach, I just started taking on athletes, started taking on football players, uh, trained a number of really good division three football players. And that just kind of, you know, just got my bug going even more to make a career out of this. After I left uh, my undergrad, I had a very, very, very short stint uh, with the Chicago bears in the old three season. And then from there, uh, just got over to Minneapolis and started training athletes of all levels. And when I did that, of course, I had always kind of had the vision that I wanted to specialize in American football. Well, by the grace of God, shortly thereafter, I happened to come across a number of NFL football players who entrusted me with taking over their preparation. Um, And the rest, I guess, as they say, is history. Because from there, uh, now for the last 10 years or so, uh, the last decade, I've pretty much specialized just in the work of NFL football players or super high-level college athletes who then uh, have a you know goal or aspiration and a really good chance and potential of reaching the NFL. So, um, you know, I'm definitely blessed to be able to do what I do. But kind of, you know, some of the things that you probably heard me say there in my answer is that for me, uh, it all comes down to movement. And those forks in the road typically have to do with me attempting to understand movement that takes place on a football field at a deeper level. And hopefully we're able to kind of get into that uh, for all the listeners, for all the coaches out there and able to give you, or those listeners as well as then anyone who might be just 
interested in American football, hopefully uh, lends to be able to see it in a different way. And that's the biggest thing that my journey, you know, as I talk about those forks in the road, my journey really involves being able to see football uh, hopefully in a little different way and kind of capstone that whole long-winded answer about my journey or my mm-hmm. background. Um, you know, that's the way that I've kind of begun to view it. You know, I kind of live and die now, my, at least in the profession, by a, an age-old quote by Dr. Mel Siff and Dr. Yuri Verkoshansky that says sport is a problem-solving activity where movement is used to produce the necessary solutions. And hopefully that kind of starts a spark there for some of uh, the direction that we're going to take uh, the coaches and the listeners here today. Well, definitely we're going to get into all those things. And uh, at some point I'll, I'll, I'll kick it over to the good doctor here to uh, get into some of the sports science behind agility. I think you, you really bring up uh, a, a great point there. And something I would tell my, my football players all the time um, when I coached them was that I did not want robots out there running the lines like they're drawn on the diagram because that diagram is just a starting point. There's so many things that mm-hmm. happen along that line that they have to react to. And obviously that's built into agility. So I think there's a, a, a huge, um, I guess, misconception in how you teach athletic agility that it has the field application that you need. You certainly can teach players to run patterns and to move their feet quicker through patterns, but they have to do that when reacting to something as well. So I'll see these videos um, on YouTube or on Facebook where some you know NFL receiver does all these crazy movement patterns around a cone and you know zigzags through this ladder and, and then runs the top of a route, catches the ball, and does four or five other things. And you're like, wow, did that guy move fast? And then all of a sudden – People are turning that into a drill where they're using that to teach athletes. And and for most of it, you ask, where does that happen on the field? How does that happen on the field? So um, talk to us a little bit about that side of it and really the need for agility to be uh, trained into being reactionary as as much as it is getting players to move their feet quickly. Yeah, I, I love the question, Keith, and I love some of the points that you brought up in there as well, you know. Because as that quote that I had already made the mention with is all movement, agility included, is a problem-solving activity. And, of course, if it's, a, if it's a problem and there's a solution, it's not something that can be repeated and it's not something that can be prescribed before the individual actually reaches the problem. And so I think the biggest thing when I look at agility is we have to look at kind of redefining agility as to what it really means, you know, that which what you describe is nothing but a change of direction, task or activity. And oftentimes, you know, there's something to be said about that. There, there's, we got to be able to get athletes to be able to coordinate and control their movement mechanics and their technical execution more readily and combine movement patterns and in different movement planes and things like that. There is value in that. There is no doubt. But to say that's agility is really a misnomer because as you made the mention, we don't want to train or create robots because football is messy. Football is chaotic. Football is complex. And it's ever-changing. It's dynamic when it takes place in the organic environment. So the biggest thing for me is kind of redefining agility and separating it from change of direction. Or more specifically, taking the skill of agility and kind of layering it out from that of change of direction technique or movement mechanics needed for better change of direction. 
there's a nuance there. There's a difference there. When we're talking about agility, we're talking about a skill that involves being able to link perception and then decision-making and then an action. So we talk in the, the movement science field about perception, action, coupling, if you will. But really what we see there is we can never separate one from the other when we look at it in sport. Very, very rarely in the sport of American football, when an individual steps to the line, do does the solution actually occur in the ways, exactly the ways that they would have practiced? It's going to be nuanced and different every single time. That would be the idea of movement variability, of course. Now, when we look at agility, and I, we make that link between perception and action, what we see lying in the middle of that is intention or a decision and a decision to be made. And when a person lines up in one of those quote-unquote movement obstacle courses, if you will, or whether it's you know cones set up in a certain way or hurdles that they have to step over in between or, you know, like you said, them doing um, you know, some sort of funky movements in between from point A to point Z or an agility ladder or whatever it might be, these pre-planned type movement responses typically are not happening in response to a relevant stimuli that's occurring in the environment. And of course, a relevant stimuli is one that is living, breathing, it's constantly changing, and it's, and it's changing in response to kind of this dual relationship that is happening between a player and their opponent. And that's not to say that everything that we have to do to train for agility has to be done with a live opponent. But the more we can stop watering down the information that must be perceived and then our response directed towards, um, the better off we're actually going to train for true agility that's going to occur on a football field. You know, so it has to be, for me, agility has to be a more dynamical system. It has to be one where there's a relationship happening between the solution that the athlete is coming up with and the problem that lies in place. And that problem, again, typically has to be constantly changing. So there has to be relevant stimuli. The athlete has to have the ability to identify that stimuli and learn to adapt their movement in response to how it's, it's being changed. And, and if coaches can start to wrap their head around that idea, of course, football and football drills and activities become much more creative. But typically what emerges from that is an athlete who's highly adaptable. They own their movement. They can perform better under the complex problems that occur, the, the chaos and the pressure and the anxiety. And, of course, that's what we're really trying to develop. If we're trying to develop more masterfully prepared athletes, that mastery comes from someone who has the ability to be an effective problem solver. So, I mean, I think for me, when we really try to look at agility, we have to think about its separation from traditional drills and look more as to how it actually occurs in the emergent behaviors in the sport of football. Sean, that's uh, a great explanation and, you know, conceptual model. Let's, let's take this to a practical uh, example. And let's think of, mm-hmm. you know, the high, the high school football player. And, of course, you've had the good fortune to work with a number of NFL players uh, you know, who have exceptional physical attributes. And, you know, let's think of some incoming freshmen and, you know, some, some lesser physically talented high school players. And, and, and again, you know, there's this notion of change of direction. 
And again, let's think about cone drills, the pro agility. We know where we're going. It's planned. And then more mm-hmm. of the agility, which requires, you know, a stimulus and perception and decision-making, right? But, mm-hmm. but let's walk a high school, let's walk a high school football coach who is starting to, to teach change of direction and agility to incoming freshman JV football players who may not have the deceleration and change of direction mechanics necessary. Let's, let's walk coaches through a, a progression that you may take an athlete of that nature through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and doc, I think that's a really good um, way because, you know, obviously though I would argue that there's nothing more practical than a really uh, concise and precise theory we still want to make sure that we're giving something applicable here than a bunch of theoretical ideas and trying to, you know, burst everyone's bubble. I think the biggest thing that we have to look at here is individuals attempt to maybe apply one of these types of frameworks or models is that we don't have to just throw the athletes through the, you know, into the fire or, or to the wolves, so to say, we can just start to essentially begin by, Moving from just repetition of fundamental motor actions using what we would refer to as maybe optimal form or proper form or technique, we want to just basically make it a progression. And instead of just throwing them to the fire and the messiness, though I can do that with my NFL players because, let's face it, the NFL player is a really extraordinary compensator. But most individuals who are listening aren't working with those compensators who were just here with the sperm lottery, of course, were they're working with the individuals like what you described. So by having a, maybe a better progression to moving on from that repetition towards incorporating the implementation of problem solving, I think first and foremost, we can take the types of drills or activities that typically people would use often with um, a cones, for example, you mentioned the pro agility in there. One of the quickest, easiest ways that I would make a mention to most uh, coaches who are trying to do this for the first time, trying to make things a little bit more agility-based, is I would say remove where that cone is and put an individual, put a human being. For example, in the pro agility, if, they're ta- if we're talking about a 5-10-5 drill, we can start that driller activity by going off of a stimulus to begin with. Maybe they're going right or left, and maybe the stimulus stands in front of the the athlete and tells them to go left or right. Maybe it's with a verbal cue, such as, again, telling them. Maybe it's with a visual cue, such as pointing left or right. Maybe if it's an offensive player and the individual steps to the left, they would go to the right. As in a, you know, because obviously offensive and defensive players will behave differently there. You can make small tweaks and adjustments like that to those types of drills that we typically would use. Then maybe when they're coming into uh, the break or the change of direction after that first five, maybe it's not five yards every time. Maybe it's four yards on one rep. It's six yards on the next. It's eight yards on the, on the third. And maybe it's not happening at a cone, but maybe it's happening with a human being who starts by moving stationary and the person would have to change direction at that stationary target. And then once they get progressively or once they control, you can progress the activity to where that person is moving. Maybe they're moving straight at a line at the person um, or at the individual to change direction. Then from there, once they start to get more uh, adept at being able to adapt their movement patterns in that way, maybe then you're having a response at 
a person at an angle or uh, two individuals coming uh, to help you try to read more relevant stimuli uh, in that way. And so by taking a typical activity that typically would be a, a closed activity, a pre-planned movement uh, response, or just what I would refer to as a biomechanical repetition, where you already know where you're going to go, and the only thing that you're working on is change of direction biomechanics, all of a sudden we've added a little bit of messiness to it, and that little bit of messiness not only typically relates to an athlete having to solve problems, but the individual starts to become a whole lot more comfortable being uncomfortable. And in that discomfort, learning typically lies. And when learning starts to occur, then we can expect motor performance to start to increase later on down the road when we want to transfer it uh, to an actual live chaotic environment, such as on a Friday night or a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon in my case. So really what I'm saying here, gentlemen, is this is by using variations of some of those typical drills that we would use before, and by just adding a stimuli somewhere in the mix and making that stimuli behave more uh, representative of that which will, could occur for that athlete's level of mastery, as well as for that individual's position or just the football field as a whole if we're just taking a large group you're going to start to create problem solvers. Again, and I get you can probably see the theme of agility to me, and it all relates to that combination of movement patterns, variation of problems, and variety or a bigger toolbox of solutions for each respective athlete. And then slowly what you will see occurring is we can start to move more of our competitive practice events and tasks for those football coaches who are truly position coaches out there, you can start to make the, the drill that you use behave a lot more like what happens on a Friday night or Saturday or Sunday afternoon as well. So hopefully that started to kind of give some framework there. You see a lot more random practice. You see a lot more temporal and spatial variability of the drill, meaning timing and location of, of a change of direction. And then from there, again, I believe what happens is a more bigger, wider, diverse movement toolbox uh, that will emerge for each and respective athlete who participates in the activities as well. Yeah, I, I just want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly because, you know, we all have our own training philosophies and our own training methodologies. But, you know, if we have an, a young athlete, you know, and it might be a 8- to 10-year-old or 12-year-old or even, you know, a freshman in high school who may not have mastered yet just fundamental deceleration mechanic do you think there's a place just to work on planned change of direction where we may be running a four cone box drill where it is accelerate for 10 yards decelerate on the left foot shuffle across the top of the box decelerate plant that right foot back pedal plant mm -hmm. the right foot and then shuffle the other way again it's planned but again that athlete needs to master deceleration and simple change of direction mechanics. Do you think there's a do you think there's a place for that? I do think there is a time and a place for that. So I don't wanna I don't wanna misconstrue or mislead anyone from thinking otherwise. You know, typically people will give me the the criticism when they hear me talking about open agility, saying that, well that's fine and dandy because I work with NFL players, but when it comes down to an individual who has to master more fundamental movement skills, 
what do I do then? And of course, most of the listeners out there probably work with more of those individuals than they do NFL players. So gentlemen, don't get me wrong there. There definitely is a time and a place for the use of what, again, what I would refer to as biomechanical repetitions or the use of uh, activities that will require the repeating or repetition of fundamental movement skills or actions. There definitely is a time and a place for that. And the one thing that I would say is more often than not, the more that you can change that up so it's more repetition without repetition. So maybe it's one of those things where that box drill that you just described changes every single rep once they maybe have mastered a certain amount of proficiency or display a certain amount of proficiency. The use of the word master there is probably a little um, overzealous, but when I say they've gotten more control or they've gotten a more uh, repeating, a less variable, a more consistent movement solution, maybe what we could do there is instead of the box remaining at five yards, maybe we take it in one rep at six, the next rep at seven, the third rep at five, or maybe we just change the, the combination of movement patterns that they utilize. The one thing that I will say there is we don't want them to get too comfortable in the, the repeating of the practice condition because we know at some point there, even if they have to get more precise, get more controlled with fundamental movement biomechanics, they still have to be, apply, be able to apply it when the environment or the task gets manipulated in some way. So there's a time and a place for blocked rehearsal of biomechanical repetitions, but I wouldn't be as hesitant as I maybe once was seven, eight, nine, ten years ago in my own career where I was just looking at basically creating the robots that Keith described before, where I was maybe looking at too much perfection or expecting too much perfection out of my athlete. And what happened there is, you know, I was kind of went with the old implications of some of our old traditional motor control and learning theories where I was just looking at idealized movement patterns where I was trying to get everyone to kind of fit within this technical model of movement for whatever respective movement pattern we were referring to. Uh, I strive for perfect practice. I strive for just have to do more reps. I almost had too much constant instruction and feedback. And once I started to make the connection that my athletes weren't actually getting a lot of transfer or retention of that work. I started to just add some messiness and I started to see a whole lot greater transfer. And that was back when I was still working with some uh, lower level of mastery and qualification of, of football athletes as well. So I think no matter what level of athlete you're working with there, you should always strive to get cleaner or crisper or more efficient and effective biomechanics but what we have to do is constantly get them to the point where they can start to own that movement a little bit more when the stimuli starts to change or the activity starts to change ever so slightly. So hopefully that made some sense and I didn't get people realizing or thinking that I'm too far on one end of the spectrum, but realize that there always is some mode of a continuum or a spectrum there that we have to work with and uh, for as well. Yeah. So regarding, uh, ends of the spectrum, I, I must bring this up. Obviously a hot topic on social media related to strength and conditioning coaches in the football community, and that's the agility ladder. So would love to hear your comments related to the agility ladder. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, typically when people get me on, they definitely go down that route to 
um, those of you who, you know, out there listening who have followed me um, probably either like me or hate me based on a video that I made a number of years back, which was probably my most watched video for Movement Mastery um, in the since I created my brand Movement Mastery, which is, a, you know, a content development site. So I'm top, constantly talking about topics related to motor control and motor learning and, and skill acquisition. And I made a video a number of years back when I was really fired up over the topic that Keith brought up earlier, which was sort of these obstacle courses that were existing for change of direction slash uh, agility. And of course, based on our previous definitions, we have started to realize that those obstacle courses, typically unless they involve a living, breathing stimulus, typically aren't really truly for agility. They're, they're for change of direction. And, of course, I was so fired up about it because there were NFL players that were posting videos of themselves doing this. That made a video talking about, you know, something along the lines of stopping the insanity of the agility ladder. Because I truly feel like the world would be a better place if every agility ladder was burned today. Um, that's how strongly I feel about it. It's ridiculousness. And the reason is not so much its use, but the way that people think that, it's, that they're utilizing and what they actually think they're getting from it. Oftentimes we think because it says agility before the word ladder, that if we lay it down and we have an athlete master the repetitive motor actions of the karaoke or the in and out type pattern or whatever pattern that they're going to place uh, the athlete under, then they do their fast feet type of activities that they're actually getting more agile. But oftentimes when we watch the athletes actually perform on that agility ladder, often what we see is first and foremost, we see zero perception and intention as what it would occur out on a football field. So the agility that would be being attained would only merely be the physical uh, ability or general motorability of base level coordination general coordination, of course, because typically we see zero relevant stimuli whatsoever. And the biodynamic structure then of that movement solution that's being placed or emerging, I should say, from the problem of the agility ladder is nothing that has any sort of contextual underpinnings of that of what happens on a football field. There's no problem to respond to. The problem is all rehearsed. It's laying there. It's never changing. And the only thing that's changing is one solution on how they're going in and out of the actual squares on the ladder. And so the biggest thing or contention that I have with it is the fact that when we look at it, we think that we have these individuals who are basically becoming robots and they're going in and out really fast. Um, there's a number of individuals who are posting these videos across the profession. And like he said, you have an NFL player who can do it extraordinarily fast and they maybe do it along with a hurdle at the beginning and a, uh, a, you know, a bunch of cones that you have to do a dance around at the end. And they, the individual will then watch that on YouTube or on social media and believe that they're getting more agile because of it. And I believe that has kind of done our, our whole profession a disservice to a certain degree. Instead of just saying that, hey, we're going to use these agility ladders, not for agility, but as a warm-up activity. Maybe it's being done or utilized in order to, you know, fire up the nervous system, if you will, if you want to think about it in that way. But I believe that there's a lot of other things that we could utilize, such as 
the use of, of variable um, movement patterns that are a little bit more fundamental in nature, that the movement biomechanics themselves would actually appear to be that of what will be utilized on a football field. I mean, when you start to watch people perform an agility ladder, the movement mechanics that you typically see, besides the foot interacting with the ground really quickly, typically you got somebody going really fast, but they're going nowhere as they do it. And of course, that very rarely happens on a football field. And if it does, most football coaches are going to be pretty pissed at, at their athlete for the way that they're kind of dancing in place and not necessarily going anywhere or going where they're supposed to in reference to the problem that's happening on the field. So there's some things that we would do instead or that I would do instead, such as, again, fundamental movement patterns such as skips and bounds and things like that or lunges in variable stances uh, in multiple planes that I believe that have greater purpose, such as either A, warming up the athlete, or B, giving them greater control uh, of their biomechanics, that would have greater relevance and or transfer to the performance on a football field if that's what someone is using an agility ladder for. So I would be perfectly okay if agility ladders went away altogether or if the people who are using them at a base level, the people who are using them would start to use them what they're probably only good for. Because I can promise that no agile mover was ever created based on the use of an agility ladder. Because there's just no stimuli to respond to. There's no decision to be made. And there is no movement problem that actually needs to be solved. Those are some great points there, Coach. And uh you know, I certainly appreciate you putting those out there. Um, I guess as we wrap up here, um, you know, we're we're airing this at a time when uh, coaches are preparing for, you know, preseason camps and, and getting into the season. Uh, give us three tips on what they can do to, to put their players through movement drills. Some of those obviously specifically rate related to the game, some of those warm up, but three tips that will help us improve those drills and get players better game ready because that's what this is all about when we hit practice we want to get them ready for the game yeah yeah no doubt and i and i love that question because again obviously it all comes down to application the, the things that i would probably say for whether it's a strength coach or whether it's a position slash football coach or whether it's no matter what hat someone wears within this profession i would think first and foremost to look at the ways that we attempt to guide the movement behaviors of our athletes. And to me, that comes down to our instruction and feedback first and foremost. I would say my rule when it comes to instruction and feedback is first and foremost to say less rather than more. And I know oftentimes as coaches, and this, as you can probably tell, and the listeners can tell from myself, from my own interview here, is that's not always easy for me. It was probably the hardest thing for me to do was to shut the heck up once in a while. But what I realized that when I started to say less rather than more is most of my verbal statements, whether they were in regards to instruction or feedback, my direction towards guidance and communication started to become more meaningful and I had to become more relatable or more understandable to the athlete. So first and foremost, I realized that if I said less rather than more, I had to allow the athlete to have more ownership over their movement behaviors. That doesn't mean that I allow a compensation that is dysfunctional 
such as their knee diving in or them planting off what I feel is the wrong foot or them not looking at the right place at the right time when they're trying to solve that problem. doesn't mean that I let those things go, gentlemen. But what I have to do is kind of pick the lowest hanging fruit that appears to be compensational during their movement solution. And if I do that, I notice that some other things start to clean themselves up. But by changing your direction just a little bit there, changing your guidance, changing your communication, it starts to become kind of this process of guided discovery for the athlete. But they get a solution that even is more implicitly driven. It's more driven by their interpretation of how they should be moving. They gain ownership rather than dependency. So they gain ownership of movement for themselves rather than dependency of me as a coach. So that would be number one. If you change your instructions, you change your feedback, you're also probably going to change uh, the subsequent motor learning that's actually going to occur. Uh, Number two would probably be for me to get athletes to once in a while when they're trying to learn a movement behavior or a new movement action or strategy or solution. So such as them executing a power cut, you know, a running back executing a power cut in the hole rather than a crossover cut. I attempt to at least at first get the athlete, give the athlete permission to slow down a little bit. And I know that seems really weird here as we head into the preseason, but I believe that slowing down gets the brain's attention a little bit more. And when you get the brain's attention, you get them the opportunity to sense and perceive different things within their environment or different things about the task. And they get the chance to change their control a little bit. So by giving them permission to slow down a tad at times kind of sets the tone for greater motor learning to actually occur. Now, granted, it's going to have to be sped up and it's going to have to have variability added to it and so on and so forth, um, you know, pretty quickly down the, down the road. But until we can actually slow down and change that behavior, we really can't attempt to give the athlete the ownership or control there either. And then finally, the, probably the next thing I would say, or the third thing I would say is look for ways to not only kind of push the athlete into this learning zone where they have to get comfortable being uncomfortable, but you help them get in places where they have to try and discover new movement solutions or new movement strategies. And this is an idea of nonlinear pedagogy um, that I'm sure Dr. Um, Joe is very familiar with here in the fact that if we try to tease or tempt athletes into a, you know, maybe kind of experimenting with or attempting to discover new ways to move new novel solutions to respective problems, such as utilizing a different cutting pattern. Maybe it's a defensive back and we're so stuck in using a T-step or a bicycle step that we don't instruct our athletes to utilize a solution of another, but that athlete might have more authentic control over the solution that we haven't instructed them with by just tempting them or kind of teasing their movement pattern to just discover a new way to move, that would be the third one. Now that requires us as coaches and as teachers to be a little bit more comfortable being uncomfortable as well. Because if I believe that a T-step is the way, then I have to kind of step out of my comfort zone and give that athlete permission 
to maybe use more of a bicycle or maybe what will then emerge out in a, a natural, organic, chaotic environment of the field will maybe be more of a hybrid of that solution, maybe a, you know, one that is, is going to be more authentic to that individual. So again, first and foremost, I would say look for ways to change your, your guidance and your communication. Second, you know, of course, like I said, kind of get them to slow down at times. And then third, help, you know, get them to a point where they might be have permission to find authentic movement solutions. Yeah, Sean, great stuff here. And I, on behalf of USA Football and the Coaching Coordinator Podcast, I want to thank you for being on the show and really providing us with a thesis on human movement and agility in football. And I want to remind the listeners that we'll be continuing the high-performance series on the Coaching Coordinator Podcast with a variety of topics related to high-performance strength and conditioning and sports science related to the game of football so that coaches and athletes can optimize their performance. Yeah, Sean, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing those things. I think uh, there's a ton of useful information there. We certainly look forward to uh, having you back here maybe as the, as the postseason. You know, guys are preparing for 2018. As crazy as it sounds, that'll be on us quick, I know, too. Um, but also, uh, give us some ways to connect with you. I know you're out there on social media and, uh, you know, mention your blog as well. I think it's outstanding what you do there. Well, I definitely appreciate gentlemen. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, and, and the pleasure is definitely all mine. So, um, anytime that you want me back, I'm always, always game. And, and that being said for all, any of those individuals, you know, I know I went through a lot of information really quickly there, but again, there's, I would encourage anyone listening to reach out to me. I'm always willing to chat with individuals. Uh, who are passionate and, and trying to do better ways uh, or trying to find better ways here to, to help their athletes reach optimal performance. So a few ways to get in touch me, with me there would be, um, first off, my email. Uh, that's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at OptimizeMovement.com. So OptimizeMovement.com, and that would be first and foremost. Uh, second of all, uh, you can type in my name, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, uh, and then the last name is Mishka, M-Y-S-V-K-A. Uh, type that in on YouTube, and I have a YouTube channel where I discuss a whole lot of different topics related to performance. Uh, people can find my fun little agility ladder video on there as well as a host of many others. I think I have something like 85 or 90 videos now um, that is free content on there where I just discuss motor learning and motor performance and other movement type ideas um, on there. And then, like you said, my blog, which is uh, footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com. So the world's longest URL there, footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com, where I kind of go through week by week throughout the NFL season and break down uh, movement that's occurring on a football field that happens in the National Football League to give people a, kind of a better idea as to what my lens is kind of turned to uh, when I watch a game of football, and hopefully it'll help others uh, be able to see things a little differently as well. But um, hopefully that gives some people some ways to contact me, and uh, I would encourage anyone who's thinking about doing so uh, to do just that. I will definitely get back in touch. All right. Thanks, Coach. Uh, thanks for your time again, and uh, look forward to talking with you in the future. I apologize for the choppiness at the end of that one that's uh, at the beginning of the podcast. Wasn't quite up on all the technical things I could do to make sure that the audio was clear. But we did fix that up over time, and uh, hopefully that's become much better. Uh, Again, Coach Sean Mishka talks about athletes' movement patterns, and that's something I expect to talk to some experts about 
in this offseason, really focusing not just on the strength and conditioning and how to build your athletes in the weight room, but also how to start to train those movements, which can be done year-round as well. So look for those episodes. And again, go to glazierclinics.com win to register for the sweepstakes that will be awarded on December 12th, the five-year anniversary of the podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, head over to iTunes and click five-star for rate. If you have a minute, write a review and follow me on Twitter at Coach K Grabowski. Thank you.